Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in the Eden Valley in Dufton with illustrator, author and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Morning, Mark. Oh, hello, David. Great to be back. Lovely Dufton, a little bit off the regular tourist trail, isn't it? Uh, on the far side of the Eden Valley to the Lake District National Park itself, and in the shadow of Crossfell, the mighty. Yes, it's lovely to see. Uh, I, I adore this sort of setting. With the spring coming to light, leaves on the trees, and blue sky, uh, and, and in a village that is emblematic of the whole valley. Dufton means the place of the... Doves. Mm. One of the interesting ones, isn't it? Now, we'll talk a little bit about the guests we have today, who I'm really excited to be meeting. But we should say, Mark, that the reason we're doing this walk, and it's very kind of you to come along, is you're joining me on day 12 of my Pennine journey. The Pennine journey being a 200 and something mile walk created by your friend David Pitt and his uh, other half, Heather which follows Wainwright's footsteps on a a walk he did when he was a young man. Yes, in 1938, uh, he made this journey, which I don't know how long his journey was, but I think your journey is 247 miles. Right. (laughs) It says in the guidebook. Very good. (laughs) Well remembered. (laughs) The journey you're on keeps to footpaths where you can. In Wainwright's time... Uh, just with the, uh, the rise of the of Germany at that time, everybody was in apprehensive mode and the roads themselves were much quieter. Yes, his Pennine Journey book, which is out of print, although I believe it's being currently reprinted by the Wainwright Society, who've managed to negotiate the rights. But, I mean, it's a wonderful book, isn't it? And it shows a different side to Wainwright. He's a young man, 31, and you're right, there's this heavy gloom sitting on on England and he goes walking really to try and shake that and he does manage to do that to some extent so he's a fascinating book of a Wainwright that I don't think you would really get from the pictorial guys if that's all you'd read you obviously knew Wainwright fairly well did you ever talk to him about his Pennine journey I did several walks with him in the Pennines right and uh, I always got that feeling he was very much in his comfort zone because he liked wild places mm. and being in in an environment that was apart from lots of people he liked being on his own and you can get that in the Pennines Well it's interesting because I think most people would consider Wainwright really as a, a, a Lakeland man wouldn't they but he was much more than that and you kind of wonder today with the busy fells whether actually you might have found him more on the Pennines. Yes. Wayne right now would probably turn his back on the Lakeland Fells. I think icons of walking world like Tom Stevenson and so on, the, the Pennines harbours that sense of wilderness and mm, um, yeah. you spirit yourself into that place. And it's also still vibrant natural history-wise. Right, well, enough of uh, Pennine journey. We are going to be following it all day today. But it's a, a relatively benign stretch we have, isn't it, Mark? Talk us through what we're doing today. So the journey to Appleby, where we're going today via Flake Bridge, which is a natural way through. It's not long, is it? Five, six miles? It's about four and a half or five. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll be worn this out. Is a, this is a stroll, isn't it? A stroll in the park. Okay, and who are we being joined by? 
Uh, oh, somebody I've uh, known for quite a few years now. It's somebody who's very tuned into the walking landscape and the walking culture, John Manning. John edits Lakeland Walker magazine and Cumbria magazine, two of the foremost magazines dedicated to Cumbria. Let's go and meet John. Well, I'm standing in the glorious sunlight on the green in Dufton, and in my company is John Manning. And it's great to be with you, John. Now, you're a man of the Pennines, I believe. Uh, yeah, I am. I'm from a different part of the Pennines. So originally, uh, I'm Halifax, born and bred. Um, Hull, Hell and... Hull, Hell and Halifax made the good Lord preserve us. But, of course, that much further down the Pennine chain. What got you into being a journalist? I kind of fell into it. I failed my A-levels and uh, made a mess of the retakes as well and was, was at a <laughs> loss as to what to do with my life. And a very good friend, with whom I used to produce a Doctor Who magazine in my, oh, in my right. bedroom at home, uh, had just left to go to Darlington on a one-year journalism course. Uh, I thought, well, you know, yeah, I could do that. So off I went to Darlington, did the one-year course, uh, and, of course, finished without a job. <sighs> However, that summer, a couple of friends were about to embark on the Pennine Way. Uh, we'd known each other through school and church. Uh, we'd lived next door but one to each other. And their mother asked me, seeing as I was at a loss, would I mind accompanying them on the Pennine Way to make sure they didn't kick seven bells out of each other <laughs> over the fortnight? Which I did. To me, it was just a revelation. I already had this derived a great deal of enjoyment from going out walking. But to actually immerse myself in it for two weeks in a fantastic range such as the Pennines uh, was, was wonderful. And when we got to Kirk Yethan at the end of the Pennine Way, I rang my mother to say, we've finished. And she says, oh, very well done. And she goes, oh, and by the way, while you've been away, you've had a letter. You've got a job. And I just swore very loudly. I, I used a very rude word. Uh, and everybody in the pub put the glasses down. It all went quiet and everybody <laughs> stared at me. I just, and I had to explain, I just said, look, I've got a job. Uh, and, and it was the worst news possible because by that stage, after two weeks, all I wanted to do was keep walking. I wanted That's... to walk, walk, walk. I started this job on the, on the weekly Tomodon News and it seemed to be engineered that every time there was a story in the area that was about walking, it was John Manning who would be sent off to cover it. I'm the sort of person who, if it's, it's not just enough to turn up for five minutes, get the story and go away. Like there was one lad who was organising a 24-mile walk for the World Wildlife Fund, or what was it called in those days, the World Wildlife Fund for Nature. That was it. So I stayed and did the, did the recce walk, um, and then did the walk itself on the day. So, you know, <laughs> instead of five minutes of a quick interview, it, it, was, it was two days of very up-to-your-armpits research. That led, uh, I went from the Tomodon News indirectly to the Evening Curry in Halifax and, and wrote a fortnightly outdoor column for them. Um, that led, again, uh, almost directly to me getting the job with the Great Outdoors magazine. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, I've ended up as, as uh, very fortunately, my, in my uh, opinion, as, as editor of Lakeland Walker, which is my modern passion in journalism. So it's that lovely way that the two have combined the outdoor 
walking and the outdoor writing have come together in the best imaginable way. Uh, to my mind, anyway. Yeah, it has indeed. We'll have a, another chat in a few minutes, but uh, we need to get walking a bit because it's uh, beginning a bit sedentary. Oh, I think we're going to get heat stroke standing here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's gorgeous here, John. It's, uh, it's it's like a little fairy dell, isn't it? It is. The bluebells on that bank. This is Dufton Gill, absolutely fabulous spot. You can hear the water tinkling. We just come over a footbridge, and uh, it's caused me to think a little bit about when you first came here on that epic <laughs> trip. As a genesis of your appreciation of what walking was all about. Yeah, I can remember very very well. We we got into Dufton uh, early afternoon on a on a day rather like this. Uh, and of course, the youth hostel was closed until five o'clock. Rules are rules, you know. <laughs> but um, the, the, some of the village kids were having a, a hockey match on the green there in front of the hostel. I, I wasn't up to it by that time. But one of the guys we were with, even though his feet were cut to shreds by blisters, joined in the hockey match. You know, it was... There's still a goalpost there now, isn't there? Is there? I yeah. missed that. I missed there, that on the way It's a galvanised post. <laughs> But uh, when they'd finished all that and the hostel still wasn't open, we were starting to get a bit dejected on the village green. And this little old lady came out and she goes, oh, hello, lads. Uh, are you walking the Pennine way? He goes, oh, yeah, we are, we are. Ah, oh, that's lovely, lads. And um, you're waiting for the hostel to open. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be another half hour yet. She goes, would you like to come in for a cup of tea and a biscuit? So in we went into her house in the front room, sitting there with all our muck on. <laughs> And she's standing there ironing in front of the fire, you know, <laughs> made us a cup of tea, brought us a biscuit. That was lovely. And we had a lovely chat. Eventually we said, oh, we'll have to go because the hostel will be open. We need to get our beds. And she goes, all oh, right, it's been lovely talking to you, lads. It's just 50 pence each, please. <laughs> <laughs> you say 50p, it wasn't sort of 10 shillings or... <laughs> no, well, we're talking, we are talking prehistory, Mark, yes, yeah. <laughs> And I remember going into the uh, the Stag Inn as well, but I don't remember coming out, but we had a lovely night in the Stag Inn. <laughs> anyway, well, well, we'll troll a little bit further, John. This yeah, it's a shame to leave this place, it but uh, Appleby beckons, I suppose. After the busyness of the village, this is absolutely exquisite, isn't it, John? There's a quarry here, very much so, but it's wedded into the landscape now. Uh, I presume from about 1600, when all domestic houses started to become built out of stone, this will have been one of the primary resources for a lot of villages in this area, particularly the Dufton itself, this lovely sandstone. It's got a lovely rosy glow to it, hasn't it? That, yeah. uh, especially when it catches the sun, it almost oh. seems to come alive. Yeah, and, and of course the bracken is very early stages and so on. It's a magical place, but we're on the Pennine journey as well as everything else. And when you did the Pennine Way, you were using a Wainwright guide. We, we used Wainwright's guide, yes, like everybody else, I suppose. But I mean, do they still use it? I don't know. There's a lot of guidebooks to the Pennine Way. I know a lot of people following those pictorial guide style books fell in love with Wayne, right? We grew to really hate him. Uh, we, we knew nothing about Tom Stevenson in those days. We imagined that in our ignorance that Alfred Wainwright concocted the Pennine Way and that he did it in cahoots with Emperor Hadrian. And that's why they, 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 they kind of engineered all these steep ascents and rotten descents and we blame them for the entire experience. It's a yom. <laughs> um, but uh, he has this huge following on the back of his pictorial guides, but my own favourite... Wainwright book is The Pennine Journey. It's got that wonderful backstory about lying in a drawer for 
for decades before somebody uh, sort of thought, well, we're making money out of him, let's make a bit more. But it's a wonderful time capsule, isn't it? It, it captures an era that, that is lost forever. You know, when you could wander the roads in the Dales and the, the rest of the Pennines uh, without being run over by Ford Mondeo on every corner. <laughs> Capri's then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when we were walking the Pennine Way, it would have been Capri. But also, there was a completely different culture. Mm. You could set off on a journey like that without any planning. You could knock on somebody's door when you came to a farm or a village and just ask if they wouldn't mind if you stayed the night, you know, and they'd make you a meal. And the hospitality must have been something else. It's probably got more life in it than any of his pictorial guides, because they're constantly updating them and so all that, so they end up being prosaically practical guides. Well, yeah, I, I think that aspect is important. I think the original guides are important as works of art. Yes. And they do carry so much of his humour. Yes. And he was obviously a, you know, a very, very clever guy, as well as his artistic talent. He's, yeah, he's so uh, diverse. Yes, he yeah. had a turn and of phrase. And a great communicator. Mm. But, but the Pennine journey is that narrative account of an adventure Mm. You know, from start to finish. You can't get from a guidebook no. in the same way. No, you can't. No, um, that's it. Anyway, we will observe a little bit further now because it's absolutely idyllic here, isn't it? It's gorgeous. Listen to those crows. <laughs> or are they rooks? I'm they're sure they're rooks. Yeah. They're rooks. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm a rookie at birds. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Another pun bites the dust. Oh. Well, it just comes out of the gill, uh, over the road, and up through... Greenhouse Farmyard, and it's a great spot actually because all around us, the Pennines are over to our uh, left, the isolated barns and the farms, slopes rising beyond, and you can see Dufton Pike just to our left backwards, and then ahead of us, Merton Pike, draws me back a little bit, back to the Lake District, where the pressure of visitors is intense. You're wanting the magazine to be pertinent and mm. relevant, um, and you've got this um, tension that's always there between business and tourism and how do you tutor your readers to actually care for that setting? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. The Lake District, you know, and the, uh, the areas of outstanding natural beauty and, and, and most rural areas are under an inordinate amount of pressure uh, from people who, frankly, just want to monetize the value of them whereas to the likes of thee and me these places have a great spiritual value mm. and a great recreational value let's face mm. it the last thing my magazines need to do is trying to attract more people to these places mm. we're not tourist pamphlets you know we can we can share information about these beautiful places we can tell stories about them anecdotes um reflections on the areas but we also try especially in Cumbria magazine um, I edit Cumbria and Lakeland Walker as if they were sister titles mm -hmm. so that one complements the other uh, in Cumbria magazine especially we take not an overtly uh, conservation attitude but we try to emphasize the importance of it because if we lose these places to this commercialization that we're talking about we're not just losing green fields and fells and everything uh, there's something in the spirit of the nation that will just be sucked out and gone forever. Mm. There are people working in urban environments who perhaps never come to these places, but the knowledge that they are there, the knowledge that they could be used as a refuge to get away from that. Just imagine you were working in London, in the city, and you, you, you looked on your browser and BBC News and it just said, Lake District National Park under concrete, tarmac. 
something to go from your soul, wouldn't it? It would. The, you might never have been to the Lake District, but the, the knowledge that you could never go there and share this beauty uh, would be so devastating. And there are great bodies who are working to preserve this, to enhance it, and to, and to make the commercialization work in tandem with nature. You know, we can't do without commercialization. We all need to earn a living. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we can't lose sight of the value of what we have now. Be Friends of the Lake District, Cumbria Wildlife Trust, bodies like that, they do fantastic work. Mm. I think if we can emphasize that in the magazine, share their messages, I think we're doing a little bit. We you do, are. You know, I think we sometimes lose sight of what national parks are for and they're mm. there to protect these areas for everyone not just for the, the businesses that thrive off them. Mm. You know, long may they continue to thrive, but in context. And the context is, you've got to honour what's here. You've got to appreciate what's here. Public transport, I mean, the transport issue in the Lake District is... Appalling. Is, is one of the worst, oh. the most bewildering things that we face. And they're now, what is it, 20 million people a year to move around that national park. Can't yeah. all come into cars, you know. And we've got little bits of great public transport systems all over the place. It could be a lot better. Mm. How do we manage that? You know, there's been proposals for blooming cable cars and, and zip wires. Again, it's got to be done sensitively. There are certain people in certain positions who seem to think that the way forward is to milk as much money as we can uh, before, I don't know, climate change takes the whole lot from us. We've got to a fabulous spot here, John, and I love panoramas. So just to bore the audience <laughs> and to bore you, and if you can chip in if you like. Not, I'm learning all the time. I'm uh, loving this. I'll just do a, a whiz round. We're walking generally east, and I can see ahead of me Roman Fell and the peak of Merton Pike, and then this great sweep of moorland wherein which Hike Up Nick is hidden from our view here. You can just see the path coming down from Hike Up. Oh, you can see the Pennell Way coming the, the down. Trail and, down there. and Great Rundell Tarn is on the, over the horizon. And you can see um, Dufton Pike, of course. And, and I can see Crossfell and as far through to Ladslack, which is where the Maiden Way crosses the Pennines from Kirkland over Melmerby Fell towards Alston and Epiarkham. Looking now to the northwest, and I can see High Pike above Colbeck and um, Bowskill Fell, and then Blencathra. Wow, uh, Great and Little Mel Fell, Clough Head, and then Great Dodd and Stybarra Dodd and Rays and Whiteside. And just above the horizon of Lodepot Hill, you can see Helvellyn, the ridge running up to High Rays on the far eastern fells and clearly uh, High Street and the dip beyond uh, Mardale El Bell of uh, Nan Beald and uh, Heart of Fell. Uh, so you've got a fabulous sweep of fells. <laughs> Joe was just uh, relating to me when he came down the Pennine Way, he came down off from High Cup towards Doveton and there was his farm where they supplied Wonderful pots of tea and, and scones. Like, like I said before, we were early. Uh, and so we were lured in by this sign offering uh, hot scones and pots of tea. Uh -huh. uh, and we went in. Uh, and sure enough, the lady of the house, the farmhouse, sat us down in the kitchen and we ordered scones. And uh, she didn't just get them out of a tin. 
She uh-huh. got a got a baking tray, slapped some mix on, and shoved them in the oven. So they <laughs> they were baked fresh there and then. How long does it take? What twenty minutes? Oh well, it wasn't it wasn't long because as soon as we'd eaten them, we ordered another <laughs> lot, and then we ordered another lot, and so we were we were very well fed by the time we got into Dufferin. <laughs> and it's one of the characteristics, you know, people come to the Lake District because it's got wonderful teas. You can have at the <laughs> pubs and whatever, and it makes me think about the sort of like icons of the area, which what caused people to come here. That's an area you've covered a bit, isn't it? For the magazine's 70th anniversary, we ran a poll, really. People could nominate the, you know, the things that they most associate with Cumbria. It was fascinatingly diverse. I mean, a lot of the things that you'd expect to see were on there. You know, the view uh, across Waswater, looking up to Great Gable and the, and the higher hills. Mm. Surprise uh, view. Or... Surprise view, I was going to say that. <laughs> right next, yes. Uh, and the Red Squirrel, of course, and Beatrix Pot and all those great writers. Um, most of the human beings who were nominated uh, were already dearly departed. Ah. But uh, Fell Running Joss was oh. way high up the list. That oh, was well, an absolutely Joss. delight. Uh, but, <laughs> but number one, of course, which is uh, quite appropriate to today, was Alfred Wainwright. There will be some that you felt were missing. Christine McVie, the singer in Fleetwood Mac. Wonderful voice, one of she's my favourite bands, right. you know, and she's from Cumbria. Um, and I have to say, uh, you mentioned Harry Griffin earlier, wonderful writer, deep sense of soul about the whole place. Um, and if I was allowed, I'd, I'd even had one of our own writers, Tony Greenbank, who mm. contributes to the, the Guardian's Country Diary column on a regular basis. He's, he's been going for years, hasn't he? He has, and he's, he comes from a, a wonderful uh, outdoor background. He's... Mm very outrooted in the outdoors, um, quite envious really, but he's a wonderful writer as well. He captures the, the humour and the character of, uh, of people and things in, in, in a marvellous way. But we'll, we'll have to get him on Countryside. When we had David Powell Thompson, he talked to him about Harry Griffin. He right. met him on the very top of Pillar Rock. Right. And, uh, on it, the top of Pillar, Pillar Rock. Rock. Harry was very uh, um, enthusiastic, and, uh, whether he was reticent in conversation otherwise, but certainly a fellow climber could only be on the top of Pillar Rock. Well, and it proved that Harry himself was a dedicated climber. He loved the environment and the culture. There can't be many people in history who've met on the top of Pillar Rock. I mean, let's face it, it's not the sort of place you bump into people, is you it? You wouldn't have met Wayne, right? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. You, yeah. As you wouldn't have seen him on the top of Helm Crag. <laughs> no, 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 no. But anyway, you've got these names. I think we need to get to Flake Bridge. We do. You know, yeah, there's so much rumbling. <laughs> Just climbed over a stile, and just before we got to the stile, I noticed there was a marshy patch over the wall. Your cute eyes, what did you spot? Uh, 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 we lapwing chicks oh. in the marshiness. They're almost like little pom-poms on lollipop sticks or something, you know, dashing around. And we can just see mm-hmm. over there was uh, one of the adults. The parents. That was calling to us just to say, yeah, would you away. mind moving on? Yeah. Would you mind well, moving we have on? moved on. There he is, look there. Just on that brow. Oh, I can, yeah. yeah. Now, I'm caught to reflect on the fact that you um, did that Pennine Way way back when. Were there highs and lows on that trip? Well, I mean, the highs were the scenery. So the section from Middleton in Teesdale, where you're walking along the river, you've got that beautiful series of waterfalls. Along sections of the there were plunge pools as well, kind of running parallel to the flow of the river. And we just used to strip off and dive in them and swim to the bottom and retrieve walking boots that somebody might have lost the previous summer and uh, 
50 pence pieces. I remember finding a 50 pence piece in the bottom of one. Beyond high force, of course, you've got cauldron snout. If, if you can have an earthy waterfall, cauldron snout's an earthy waterfall, isn't it? It's um, it's just such a chaotic jumble. It's a delight. It's a scramble as well. Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. the only proper scramble on the whole route. <laughs> <laughs> what I remember from there is, is walking up across the moor, that gentle incline towards High Cup, and we had the thump of the artillery on the firing range over to our left. Mm -hmm. um, and then we arrived at High Cup. Now, I'd never been there before in my life. And if I would advise anybody listening to the podcast, actually, if you're going to visit High Cup, do that. Come at it from the east across the moors because the ground suddenly falls away at your feet and you've got this beautiful U-shaped valley. And I can still remember being there. I can still picture it now. There were just little clouds coming up the bottom of the valley and then racing up the cliff at the top and rising in front of us. And we were looking out across the Eden Valley uh, towards the Lake District and we could see RAF jets flying along that valley, you know, below our height, below where we were. And what it reminded me of the time, and I've, I've written about this in the magazine, um, was, was uh, a little bit of uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe where they're standing on a cliff and looking out across Narnia with Aslan the Lion and looking out across basically everything, all creation, and it felt like that. It was uh, it was just mind blowing, mind blowing, and great canyon. Yeah, but it's only accessible on foot as well. Any really low bits in the journey for you? Low points. It's difficult, isn't it? Because it all it's, it's all kind of patchwork quilt. It's the whole, the entire thing that makes the the impression. So the low points aren't really low points. They're just a different aspect of it. Yeah. But I do remember walking along the reservoir tracks from the White House towards Studley Pike, uh, and we'd picked up a two or three other lads who we were all walking with together in a line. Um, it was quite wet. We all had huge heavy rucksacks on because we, we hadn't discovered lightweight backpacking then. Two days later, when one of our parents came to meet us to see how we were getting on, we dumped a lot of gear into their car boot to lighten our load. But we're all walking along those reservoir tracks, which are quite hard, and I was staring at the feet of the guy in front of me, and I, it was almost as though I was hallucinating that his feet were sinking into the ground. And it felt like my feet was sinking into the ground. And it, it was just demoralising. Yeah. And the following day, uh, we, we dropped down from Mankin Holes to cross the A4, 646 near Hebden Bridge. And while we were stood there, it occurred to me, I could have caught a bus somewhere. <laughs> you know, and I thought to myself, if I can get across this road and up the next hillside... You're away. I've cracked the whole Pennine way. <laughs> yes. If I can drag myself away, save myself from that humiliation. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, it, we did. It was your a kinder scout moment, because a lot of people give up on <laughs> yes, there. Yes, Or bleed clothes, having yes. that does them. I never forget seeing, as, as we climbed up out of Edale, uh, there were some lads who, like us, they'd taken too much, but unlike us, they'd taken about ten times too much. And there were some seasoned backpackers that sat them down next to a ditch and they were going through the rucksacks and they were throwing out cans of baked beans and cans of pasta, whole bags, of, you know, two-pound bags of sugar into the ditch. And they, <laughs> Yes, those lads were getting a real educated lesson because they wouldn't have gone up the road onto the fell if they'd have uh, carried on like that. <laughs> Just crossed uh, the footbridge over Keasley Beck, over a wall snarling, and just to our left, there's a blue pipe coming out of the beck and a green piece of cast iron. And I've never seen one of these before, John. It's for pumping water. A cow could put its head to it and pump it, 
and pump water from the Beck, Keasley Beck, and drink without any paraphernalia. It's a remarkable moment here. We've come onto the plateau, uh, having just entered Flakebridge Woods, and the floor is blanketed. These are bluebells, and they just, with the dappling of the shadows from the oak trees. What do you think it is about bluebells, Jean, that really transcends them and gives them such an impact? When you see a bluebell wood from afar, it just glows, doesn't it? How often, though, do we come across blue in nature? There's not a lot of examples, is there? No. You... Forget-me-not. Yeah. But to, to see not swathes of it like this. Acres of it. I wonder if, as well, I mean, bluebells are a woodland plant and, you're, you know, a deciduous woodland, broadleaf native woodland we don't have enough of that left yes. and maybe there's some trace memory of you know going back thousands of years How through the we... generations about we know, are backwoodsmen at heart yeah yeah a message of home as well home uh, and hope because spring has really taken root mm. and before the bracken smothers it and it's lost the bracken's already pointing its head out there's yeah. no not a breath of wind i can hear a distant airplane chaff chip chaff And the insects buzzing. Flakebridge Woods are named after a bridge over the Beck, which we haven't come to yet. But it was originally Fleck Bridge. Fleck is a Cumbrian term for a hurdle. So presumably it's a wooden structure once upon a time. A Fleck Bridge. Would you, would you guess at how long ago? A thousand years. Right. I was going to say, you, you know, you kind of associate a bridge on stilts, which is essentially what you're talking about, with, you know, almost prehistory, don't you? Mm. Say it's something that seems to go back a long way. Well, it's rather sad to be coming out of the wood and into the meadow, <laughs> John. It was absolutely amazing in there. The, fragrance of the bluebells was yeah, and you can smell the soil as well can't you when it's when it's like that so untouched and pristine it's lovely absolutely marvelous yes anyway john i'm reflect a little bit on your walking i think this needs to be a little bit covered uh yeah for my 40th birthday so how many years ago is that 10 no don't count them don't count. thank you very much i quit my job basically i've been in the job 10 years and uh, i went to the states to hike a trail known as the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, which was 2,650-some miles from Mexico to Canada. That is, that's longer than the Appalachian Trail? Yeah, it's, it's another it's six 700 miles longer than the Appalachian Trail. It sounds a phenomenal walk to undertake. You built up for it in advance? Um, I didn't, actually. The terrible state you see me in now is roughly the similar physical state to what I was in when I started that trail. I was uh, at an all-time weight high. I'd not done a lot of exercise. I was quite a heavy smoker, mm. um, an even heavier drinker. <laughs> but you actually somehow got yourself into it. And were there some phenomenal moments uh, in terms of effort? Going through the Sierra was quite demanding because 
they were still under snow. Um, and the, the way it worked out, you go over several very, very high mountain passes through the Sierra Nevada. Um, you'd get up early in the morning, you'd do those while the snow was still hard from mm -hmm. the overnight frost. So that you, when, you, when you go down them in the afternoon, the snow's a lot softer, so there's a lot more give in it, and you can not quite glissade, but almost glissade down. Uh, but that's quite taxing day in, day out, day in, day out. Okay. But it, you mentioned preparation. Having done the Pennine Way, so what, 20 years earlier, was it? Uh, a bit less than that. The same mentality kicks in. It's, it's the same average 20 miles a day. Uh, and if you think about it, the, the Pacific Crest Trail at 2,600 and some is just 10 Pennine Ways. So you break it down and you do it in week or two week stretches uh, because it, it is, I think, impossible to prepare for the... Uh, the stamina that you need to tackle something that takes more than five months to walk. So if, if you break it down into stages, yep. mentally, it just becomes 10 different adventures. Yep. So one of the tougher sections was the exact opposite of the mountains because you, you, you start off going through the Mojave and Anzabariga deserts, which are not as you might imagine, they're not flat, but they're very testing in a different way because the um, it's boiling hot, of course, you know, it hits 100 degrees Fahrenheit oh, at midday. Um, so midday you tend to sit down under a juniper or something like that and uh, sit it out, sit out the midday heat. You also go through big areas where there's been forest fires and the dust from those lingers for years afterwards. You, you take your socks off at night and your feet would be black with the, with the sand and the dust. <laughs> Lots of people take on these long journeys to reassess their own lives. Do you feel that these trails that you've done have reassessed your life in some way? Yeah, that's, that's a good way of looking at it. The Pacific Crest Trail, you know, as I say, I'd, I'd been in the job I was in at the time for 10 years. I was getting very fatigued, really, mentally fatigued. I went on the Pacific Crest Trail thinking I'd have some sort of moment of enlightenment, some road to Damascus thing, mm -hmm. and I didn't. And it took me a few weeks after getting back to Britain to work out that what it had taught me about was uh, the goodness of people, of your fellow man. There are, there are people um, who live along the length of that trail who take hikers into their homes overnight. They'll let them shout, they'll do the laundry, they'll feed them, just out of the goodness of the house. They don't want anything back. Uh, when you're walking along through the desert, you'll, you'll come across a, a blooming cooler. You open it up and it's full of Cokes and Sprites and water. Um, other people leave water stashes out just for Pacific Crest Trail hikers. I think they're living their lives through you. They're living vicariously, so they want to help you as much as they can. Um, and that generosity, uh, they don't expect anything in return, you know? Mm. Uh, they just want to do it for, for your benefit, for the goodness of their hearts. Which is, harks back to Wainwright's experience when he did his original journey where he would go and knock on a farmhouse door and they'd yes, welcome him in. Of course, yeah. I think a few coppers might have changed hands in that case. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but yes, it's that same unquestioning sense of hospitality that I received out there that, yes, it might well be akin to what Wainwright was and experiencing. It caused me to reflect on Tom Stevenson just briefly because yeah. in the late 1940s he took a group of MPs, yeah. Labour MPs, on a trek from Middleton in Teasdale to Hadrian's Wall on what became the Pennine Way and introduced them to this sense of connection with people in a wilder setting and what that actually gives to people, the gift of wild places. Yeah. There's that additional quality that it, that it does bring out the best in people. I'm sure there is great friendship and hospitality and welcomes in urban settings, but w w when you're out in the sticks and you get it 
with no uh, nobody asking for you to do something in return. It's, it's, it's almost an unspoken sense of dependency and uh, and a willingness to to respond in you know whenever yeah. needed. Yeah. It's lovely. Across <laughs> this meadow and see where we get to. We're coming down a valley, well, a very shallow valley, flanked on the right by woodlands. Uh, you look back towards Crossfell, and there's a family who've taken advantage of this lovely balmy afternoon to have a picnic, and who would blame them, alongside all the sheep with their lambs. <laughs> and uh, it's Crundale, I remember that valley, just over there, uh, the Crooked Valley. Just hear traffic, the A66, and uh, rather than get too close to it, Country Stride has this terrible habit of asking its honoured guests quick-fire questions. Should I tremble? Should my knees be knocking together? I think they should be. Perhaps you might respond to, well, let's say, what's your favourite lake? Favourite lake? Uh, Ullswater. We used to come up to the Lake District every between Christmas and New Year with the church youth group. Every year for about ten years from when I was aged 11 uh, to ask them. Mm. And we'd wander over to Pooley Bridge to buy our cider supplies for the secret midnight feast that the church leaders didn't know we were having. Of course they didn't. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, Ullswater has a lot of memories. And we hiked the Ullswater Way, which I believe you're familiar with. Oh, rather. Last summer. Um, we did the uh, what Wainwright would have called the Superman version. We did the Dodge instead of the Lake Show. <laughs> well done, you. <laughs> so on that basis, what's your favourite spot in the Lake District? I think Upper Estdale, the high reaches of Upper Estdale. Wow. I think that's one of those very, very special areas. You know, walkers know about it, a few others know about it. Uh, it doesn't get the crowds. And I, I, I believe that that kind of area deserves an extra layer of protection above and beyond national parks. Uh, in the States, they have wilderness areas. You're not allowed to take any, uh, any kind of power tool or engine or anything, so there isn't even any atmospheric pollution, let alone ground pollution. Uh, you know, there's no livestock. Um, there is just allowed to be wild. And if a tree falls across a trail over there, they have to go and saw it out with a handsaw, even if it's a giant redwood, you know. It would be wonderful to see some of our most remote, beautiful, wild areas protected, given it a layer of protection like that. But oh. sorry, you're, these are quick-fire questions, No, no, that's everything, because <laughs> actually I'll just tune in with you there because uh, about 10 years ago I did mention it to the chief executive of the National Park that there should be mountain sanctuaries. Yes, that's a great yeah, great way of looking at it, a mountain sanctuary. And, uh, and that is one of my classic mountain yeah. sanctuaries. Yeah. Even if it was only three or four, <coughs> that would be a wonderful statement of what the Lakeland is all about. It's not about tourism, it's not about making money, it's about cherishing and caring for a landscape. But anyway, yeah, brilliant. You're on the nail. Um, <laughs> So, what is your favourite fell? Uh, favourite fell, can I, can I pick an easy one, Helvellyn. When, when I was working for the daily newspaper in Halifax, come the weekend, if you were lucky enough to have the two, two days at the weekend, <clears throat> I'd jump in my car straight after work, drive up to uh, Patterdale, book into the hostel, and then get up on Helvellyn before the sunset. Um, uh, which is the time to have it because you get it all to yourself and it's and it's quite magical and there's something special about the air at high altitude isn't there i mean mm. we can't get much higher than that in england uh, and it's energizing it's invigorating it's almost electrifying and, and yeah, that's, that's what i like about it now if you were prime minister and at the moment i think that job's up for grabs <laughs> as long what? as you don't have to dance <laughs> Uh, what one thing would you do to protect the legacy of the, lake, the lakes for future generations? Oh, how radical can I be? 
Oh, uh, we can edit it out if it's that radical. <laughs> I bumped into Carl Liss, who's chairman of the Yorkshire Dales National Park, on a train once and had this conversation with him. Uh, and I don't think he took me seriously, but I would... Deep down, personally, I would love to see the national parks uh, get a similar treatment to the American national parks. Let's take all the habitation out, all the businesses out. Let's close down the roads. And only uh, you can only get there under your own steam, whether it's walking, cycling canoeing or whatever let's protect these areas mm. that's never going to happen they are communities as well we're a small island we, we don't have the luxury of doing what the americans have managed to do with no. in a dreamland in a fantasy world, fantasy world you know tent or bnb tent there you are there's, uh, there's, there's more room in a tent there's more room your perfect lakes day perfect lakes day i think that would be um, a round of uh, langdale finishing off with Dinner and several pints in the old dungeon girl. Well, that covers it nicely. Hopefully when they're having a folk session or something as well. Do they still have the sessions in there? Yeah, they, they, they do. Wednesday yeah. nights. Fantastic. <laughs> and as a final little gem, your earliest lakes memory. Um, earliest lakes memory. Before we used to come up to the lakes with the church youth group, uh, we came up with um, groups from Brighouse Girls Grammar School. Just you. Yeah, well, my <laughs> mother was a teacher there, so uh, and because my dad was a news agent, she didn't have the luxury of being able to leave us at home, so she had to take us to the Lake District with, and that's partly where I got my love of, of the Lake District from, um, you know, because uh, we, we've always come up here as kids, as teenagers, as adults, and you almost start to take it for granted, don't you, when you do that? <laughs> uh, but yeah, and I remember, you know, visiting the Bowder Stone and. Um, I, don't have this trade vague memory of going up Hell Villain, but I'm sure we wanted and we'd have been far too little. <laughs> yeah, we just used to have so much fun staying at the youth hostel in Grasmere, um, uh, and some of the other teachers brought their kids, and we were all of the same age, and we'd run around the, uh, the grounds there and, and have a whale of a time. Yeah, I think those are my earliest late memories. journey's end and we've reached Appleby which was my destination on today's leg of the Pennine journey and I have to say I wasn't expecting a huge amount from today you know I saw it on the map and it looked fine I was delighted it was only five miles uh, after some of the mileage I've been doing but it was absolutely fab uh, the the little gorge at the beginning in the quarry with the, the beck there and then that Bluebell Wood. Wow. Plate Bridge Wood, one of Cumbria's hidden gems. And today it was at its best. It was fragrant, it was vibrant uh, colours. We were very slow today because we just couldn't walk past. It was so lovely. Yes, it's taken us seven hours to get here. <laughs> we were Four going... miles taken us seven hours. Isn't there that remarkable? That's either an indication of how much TLC goes into these podcasts or the fact that an awful lot of unnecessary nattering happens. <laughs> I'm not sure. Some housekeeping, the usual housekeeping. All of the episodes of Country Stride are available to download from www.countrystride.co.uk. You can follow us on... At Country Stride 1 on Facebook and Twitter... Yeah, you can do all of that. Please do spread the word if you like it, the podcast, and if you have friends or family who 
love Lake District, love Cumbria and love walking and please do spread the word. It's, uh, it's also lovely to hear from you. So if you uh, want to say hello, then please do contact us. And, and we, we've actually had a couple of people who said, uh, 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 Gary Ware of Leeds says, it's a wonderfully relaxing and informative time listening to our podcast. Very good. And Tony Bowman of Patton Hall in Cheshire. Uh, I love the leisurely pace and approach of your podcast. Very professional, very listenable, lovely stuff. It's lovely to know that people value what we're trying to do. It is. And uh, I have to say, Tony, Tony Bowerman there, leisurely pace. You've got the, the nail bang on the head. That's uh, at half a mile an hour today. <laughs> was it as fast as that? <laughs> I thought it was less. Right. From now and the churchyard in Appleby. Appleby in Westmoreland. We're saying goodbye now because we're going to go and have a cup of tea and I'm personally going to go and get some lunch because it's now five o'clock and I still haven't eaten because we've been walking at half a mile now. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.